Clear. background noise throughout the day but it's just airplanes so it's not it's, it's not really noise. good background noise yeah right. this is this is the best seat in the house that's right we got sky riders now we got sky riders, we got sky riders now. now does that say you cap i can't it's got a runway in the front yard <laughs> and you're in sight clear left turkey national ground good afternoon sir taxi via foxtrot and delta So, Jeb, one of the things that we kind of glossed over in all of those Oshkosh episodes was that you became a meme. Uh, and uh, and I think this is kind of remarkable on, on a number of different levels. Um, when Your trip flying to Oshkosh. Now, now your, your trip home from Oshkosh was fairly unremarkable. I mean, it was a great long cross-country and all that kind of stuff, but it was just kind of almost a straight shot, right? Hours. Except for the little bob and weave at the end. Yeah, you had to little, do a little divert at the end. But that, but, but more interesting was your flight to Oshkosh. Um, first of all, it was kind of just an interesting exercise in you know working your way through the weather halfway across America. Uh, the other thing was though that a number of uh, internet folks, particularly listeners of this podcast, decided to follow you on FlightAware uh, and then have a conversation about it the entire way on Twitter. And uh, they invented the, ha- the Twitter hashtag, uh, jeb 2 10 and, uh, and they were following you all day long. And apparently they took it as some sort of object lesson in how to, uh, to you know, do a long cross-country through weather. I-, I know it was a while ago. It was sort of like two or three yeah. lifetimes ago. But, but what do you remember about that flight? Was that, uh, it-, it was an interesting flight, wasn't it? It, it was. Um, on one level... Um well, a couple, three levels, I guess. One, one level is a typical uh, uh, summer uh, afternoon in North America where there's what I call popcorn thunderstorms pop- popping up all over the place. Um, on another level, it was a relatively typical, um, for me, I should say, perhaps, cross-country in that uh, there's, you know, there's airspace considerations, there's weather considerations, there's, um, you know, there's fuel considerations, there's headwind considerations. And, you know, all of that combined, uh, all of those considerations combined um, to, into a, basically a, what I call a real-time go-no-go decision. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, we, we can talk about that more uh, if you want. Uh, I, I guess the third thing was uh, kind of um, demonstrates, if you will, that timing and uh, location uh, can get you through some weather that uh, another location and another time uh, is just impassable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and uh, um, I guess you know if if I were to share any lessons with anyone, uh, those are those are the three lessons I'd share. Yeah. Now, I, and and Dave and I were also traveling. So uh, and Dave doesn't do Twitter anyways, uh, which is another conversation for another day. But. Uh, uh, I wasn't able to. Uh, I wasn't able to follow uh, the first two thirds of it in real time, um, uh, and the, the, the final third I did follow. I want to talk about separately, but let's just talk about the first two thirds. As near I, as I can reconstruct it, you did do a little bit of zigging and zagging for some storms, sure. Um, sure. Uh, up to up to like the uh, what Indiana area, I guess. Did you actually land out during that period, or did you just just zig and zag? No, I just zigged and zagged. I, I that particular that was a three leg day. Um, 
started here in Sarasota. Uh, I didn't have enough gas to um, even try to go nonstop all the way. Um, so I, I picked a fuel stop in Reedsville, Georgia, mm-hmm. uh, which was a, a pretty cheap. It was long. It was on the way. It was within. Uh, it was within range of what, I, what fuel I had in the airplane, um, and um, you know, quick in and out, uncontrolled airport, self serve gas. So I stopped in Reedsville, um, and I'd fl- flown that leg um, VFR. Um, the leg from Reedsville, to, hopefully to Oshkosh. Uh, I flew IFR because I knew that there was weather along the way, and I, I wanted uh, to, to be in the system for that. Um, I I don't remember exactly. Well, I, I remember the the, the largest, um, the first largest area of weather was um, west of the Knoxville, Tennessee area, as I was you know, smoking through that uh, that airspace. Um, it, there were several um, um, large thunder bumpers in that arena, uh, in that area. And um, looking at it, I, um, those who don't know, I have a, a Garmin 530 in the panel. I have a Garmin 396 portable with um, with an X-Red, uh, well, with uh, XM weather, um, uh, also playing uh, playing well and working with the rest of the airplane. And I uh, was watching. Uh, those storms develop on the 396. Um, basically, I was on a, a direct flight plan uh, from Reedsville to Oshkosh. No one really cared at that point, um, and um, saw this stuff coming up, and, and you know, talking with ATC and and um, working um, around uh, around the weather. Uh, just went a little bit west and uh, found a couple of slots. Um, the uh, um, the stuff was broken up enough that it wasn't a big deal to get around or through or between um, as long as I stayed VFR. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one of the keys I want to emphasize. Uh, and I'll emphasize it again before we, before we stop talking about this. But uh, um, especially in a light plane in the, in the low levels, uh, relative, I was at 8,000 feet for this flight. Um, there is no reason on God's green earth to fly into IMC when you know there are thunderstorms around. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just not healthy, okay? Uh, and one of my, one of my maxims, uh, I'll, I'll fly into a, a cloud or IMC you know, when I know there are thunderstorms around if I know what's on the other side. And that means judging um, the height of the cloud I'm going through, uh, being able to, to well, based on the height of the cloud, uh, which basically means not very much height, um, being able to see beyond it before I go into it, mm-hmm. knowing knowing that there's not you know a fifty thousand foot uh, monster sitting behind it that I'm about to get chewed up in. Um, so that was really kind of the first jog, if you will, uh, around stuff was uh, west of Knoxville. Um, there were a couple of other looking at the ground track on that. There were a couple of others, one of which I do not remember uh, <laughs> at this. It didn't remember it the day after. I, I don't know if that's a um, an artifact from FlightAware, um, or if um, uh, you know uh, the autopilot was just kind of flying the airplane. I don't know. I don't right. remember. Yeah. So but, uh, 
Yeah. Well, I was just going to say, so so then, I, so that was sort of the first two thirds, if you will, roughly speaking, uh, of the flight. Um, and then I arrived in Oshkosh and was able to start pay, paying attention on the internet. Um, uh, round about the time you seemed, you were sort of over Illinois-ish, um, that area. I don't know if you were actually north of Chicago yet or not, but that was when um, it seemed like it really got interesting. Uh, you, you were confronted apparently by a pretty dramatic line of thunderstorms um, east-west, sort of right. Roughly along the Illinois Wisconsin border, and there, uh, there were two things going on there. One, my my plan had been to go east of Chicago, um, and east of Gary, Indiana. There's a a VOR down at the southeast corner of Lake Michigan called Gipper, and my plan had been to go up over Gipper, uh, staying east of Chicago's airspace, and then cross the lake and, and um, um, smoke on into Oshkosh. Um, South, well south of, of uh, that that area, um, I got rerouted and, and didn't object to it because uh, in looking at the reroute, it made a lot of sense. Got rerouted west of Chicago and then north um, to around uh, the, the Rockford-Madison area and then uh, uh, supposedly direct into Oshkosh. One of the reasons for that reroute uh, was airspace. The other reason was... Uh, a line of thunderstorms that was forming and had been forming for some time, um, basically just north of Chicago, uh, basically right on top of, or, or I should say east-west line, uh, right over Milwaukee. And that stuff was forming uh, out in uh, Iowa and um, moving at like 30 knots or so mm-hmm. and drifting over, the, over uh, Milwaukee and over Lake Michigan. And I didn't want to really start futzing around over Lake Michigan with, with a bunch of weather for a variety of reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, so the reroute made some sense. Yep. So what were you seeing now at this point, um, both on your uh, on your weather radar or your weather, you know, your uh, satellite ra- weather radar and uh, and out over the windscreen? What were you seeing? It was the Great Wall of Wisconsin. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty much it. By the time I got to that, um, um, that system, uh, I was seeing a lot of thunder bumpers. Um, basically lined up in a line. Um, at the same time, both the Nexrad and the Mark One Mod One eyeball were showing me a, a gap, a soft spot mm-hmm. in, in some of this. And uh, as it happened, um, my routing was going to take me within, you know, plus minus 10 degrees uh, of that gap, of that soft spot. So I just kept on motoring toward it. Mm-hmm. Um, there were my, myself and, and two or three other people on, on the frequency were, uh, and I don't know what kind of aircraft they were in, I don't know what altitudes they were at, uh, were basically, you know, kind of trying to get through that at the same point, the same location. And uh, the the closer I got to it, the, the narrower that, that, or the harder that soft spot became. Right. And we, we were all kind of marveling because at one point you were, you really got your nose right up into that line, at least according to what we were seeing on the FlightAware radar. Uh, and, yeah, I, I and then you right up. Yeah, yeah. I flew right up to it for two reasons. One, um, it closed right as I got to it. Right. Uh, if I'd been 15, 20 minutes earlier, uh, I wouldn't have. I, I'd still been able to go through it. Um, so that that's that's one factor. The other factor was I wanted to get up close and look at that because, as I say, uh, I want to use the eyeball just as much as I want to use the the, the airborne uh, uh, Nextrad weather, and. Um, be able to see what's on the other side of it. Mm-hmm. As I say, I, I don't mind poking through a little IMC if I if I know what's beyond it. Yeah. What was the ride like in in that area? The ride was fine. I didn't I didn't have any concerns. In fact, the worst ride of that trip 
um, had been, uh, I don't know, Georgia, Tennessee, when I'd gone through a few white puffies that didn't really show on, uh, on the next rad and uh, got bounced around a good bit. Um, the ride was, was fine. Uh, it was, it was uh, if I'd continued, it was surely not going to be fine. Yeah. Uh, but that's another story. Um, so as I say, the gap had closed and, um, uh, you know, poke, tried to poke my nose in it and just, it just wasn't going to happen. Yeah. And now at what uh, point, well, uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, what, well, that's okay. uh, I'd already, you know, started thinking about diverts. Um, I'd fl- overflown Rockford, um, and, uh, could certainly go back there. Um, Madison wasn't going to happen because it was, uh, either on the other side or, uh, um, you know, underneath the weather, um, in, in, in looking at the way this stuff was developing and zooming the, the next red in and out and painting it and this kind of thing, uh, I discovered that, you know, another hundred miles to the west or so, it was basically nothing. It was, it was starting about a hundred miles to the west and, and building and growing from there. Uh, and then moving, as I say, about 30 knots uh, to the east. So in my mind, it's real, really kind of simple. Uh, if it's not, if there's no weather 100 miles to the west, go west, young man. Yeah, okay. So, so at what point uh, did you start spe- thinking specifically about Dubuque? Um, about the time I, well, it, Dubuque was another divert uh, possibility as well as Rockford. And the more I thought about it, um, the, the, the less I wanted to be in Rockford because I'd still have the same problem according to all the information I had. So um, Dubuque was... Um, not that far away. As a matter of fact, I had to start down immediately to get to it, and um, had a you know great facility, towered towered airport, a couple of FBOs, long, nice long runways, uh, you know nearby hotels, uh, all those kinds of, of considerations. Um, so uh, diverted to Dubuque. Um, by this time, I'd I don't know I'd been airborne at least five hours. Uh, I've got you know generally seven or so hours of gas. Um, I had I landed with. I don't know, two hours or so gas on board at, at a cruise power setting, but you know, about an hour at a takeoff power setting. So, you know, those are all, you know, considerations. Mm-hmm. Those are all part of the equation. Um, landed, stretched my legs, got some, got some water, emptied the bladder, uh, filled the tanks, checked weather, uh, talked to you guys to see what the weather was like, uh, um, literally was like at, at Oshkosh, and... Um, uh, made the decision to go ahead and launch and make another attempt to get into Oshkosh that yeah. night. Now, this final leg was pretty interesting because you launched out of Dubuque and basically went the wrong way. Exactly right. Um, sometimes you, you uh, well, I, uh, sometimes you have to do that if you, if you want to get around some stuff. But uh, one of the main factors involved here was the winds aloft. Uh, I've mentioned a couple of times here that uh, um, that that weather system, that, that um, um, line of weather was moving at about 30 knots, which means you have about a 30-knot headwind going west, but you have about a 30-knot tailwind going, west, uh, going east. Mm-hmm. So um, one of the, the things that I've kind of learned over the, over the years is when there's weather around, um, even though the, uh, the air you're flying in uh, is, is basically static from, from the standpoint of you're, you're faster than it, um, you want to try to get away from that stuff as quickly as you can. Once you once you go through it, you don't want to linger. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, uh, it certainly doesn't hurt anything to have a tailwind uh, to blow you on to your destination or blow you on your way uh, once you get through it. So 
uh, flew 75, 80 miles from Dubuque west uh, with about a 30-knot headwind uh, to where to the point where I could turn the corner, essentially. Yep. And, and um, uh, as I said earlier, that stuff was building about, 80, uh, about 100 miles uh, west of where I'd started uh, trying to penetrate it and, and didn't, where it didn't happen. So going west put me in an area of much more benign weather. And in fact, um, uh, on that leg, there was well, there were a couple of bumps as I as I kind of poked through a uh, some a cloud or two, uh, where um, I could see the other side, I could see around it, um, and kind of just wanted to see that. Actually, did it on purpose. Wanted to make sure that uh, uh, what I was seeing was what I was seeing, and that um, uh, this wasn't just a bunch of rain that was just sitting there. Mm-hmm. In fact. Mm-hmm. Did turn out to have some exuberant bumps in it. So, once I got around, once I got uh, through that in the in the controller at um, I forget which uh, facility. I think it was uh, maybe Rochester, uh, uh, Minnesota. But uh, um, the uh, local Tracon controller there was just great. I think I was about the only guy on this frequency trying to do this. And and uh, Chicago Center had told me I was told him I was coming and yada yada yada. But uh, as I say, he was great. We we maneuvered through all that, had a smooth ride through the worst part of it, uh, by staying VFR, mm-hmm. and um, turned the corner, um, caught that thirty knot headwind. Caught, excuse me, caught that thirty knot tailwind, and I think I was on the ground at Oshkosh forty five minutes later. Yeah, yeah. Now you arrived. Uh, uh, this is before the uh, the Oshkosh procedure took effect. So you just was a regular VFR arrival at Oshkosh, right? IFR, yeah, I, just a regular. Well, IFR. it was an IFR. Oh, okay, you were still on IFR. It was a visual uh, approach, but it was an IFR flight plan. Got it. Got it. Well, that's great. It was it was quite a it was a fun thing to watch from the ground. It sounds like it was uh, you know fun. It was fun to watch from the air. <laughs> hey, before we move on, I want to talk a little bit more about the uh, arrival at Oshkosh. But uh, uh, that was great. Uh, welcome, folks, to episode two hundred and two of Uncontrolled Airspace, the General Aviation Podcast. We're recording this episode on Sunday morning, August eight, twenty ten. And uh, joining me here in the virtual hangar is uh, two good friends. First of all, you've been listening to uh, Jeb tell us his fascinating story. Jeb Burnside, talking to us uh, back home somewhere near Sarasota, Florida. How are you doing this morning, Jeb? I'm much better now. Yeah, it's... You might, it's I was particular afternoon, but uh, even that, you know, it wasn't... It, um, I had I had a lot of confidence in the airplane. I had a lot of confidence in my you know, my ability to you know kind of pick my way through. Yeah, that, so. yeah. It wasn't all that stressful. And also here in the virtual hangar is uh, Dave Higdon, joining us from Wichita, Kansas. Hey, David, how you doing? Feeling a lot more rested than a week ago when we were on the uh, front porch at EAA Radio. Yeah, it was quite a week. It, it was it was quite a week in many ways. Um, and we're going to talk about that, believe it or not. We are going to talk about that this morning. But uh, but before we do that, um, David, you had a little bit of an uh, aviation adventure getting to Oshkosh this year, too. Although you went by way of the airlines, Um I don't know. You want to talk about this? This is uh, you had a, a somewhat notable flight. Well, we uh, we had two flights that, in, in some, you could uh, you, you could wrap up with my favorite words about flying uneventful, but in reality, the second leg was uh, from Minneapolis to Appleton, Wisconsin. Alpha Tango Whiskey was among the more uncomfortable hours I've ever spent in an aircraft anywhere. Uh, the uh, flight was all IMC. It was raining. Uh, it was at 16,000 feet in the uh, Saab 340, which uh, can 
lot, quite a bit higher. Uh, and it was nonstop. Uh, what's the word I want here? Uh, a little bit like a martini shaker. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of a lot of shaking around, a lot of rattling. Nothing so violent that the flight attendant couldn't squeeze down the aisle and hand out cookies and, and peanuts and and dole out a little bit of liquid refreshment. Uh, but just short of that level where the captain's going to come on and ask the flight attendant to take take a seat. And it was that way from just about the time the wheels went in the wells until we were we broke out at Appleton. Uh, at which point the uh, the flight crew very nicely handled a ninety degree crosswind in a way that uh, I couldn't believe. I, I I thought that the crosswind had died out until we went rolling by a windsock that was rattling ninety degrees off of our direction of uh, of uh, landing rollout, and I was dying for a gyro stack in my, my seat in seven A so that I could reconcile what my inner ear was doing with what my eyeballs told me the front of the airplane was doing, Yeah, which were 180 degrees out of phase with one another. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was very, very uncomfortable at times, not because it was so rough, but because it was just unrelenting and there was no frame of reference to fix my eyeballs on that said, this is all straight, this is all level, oh, this is rolling this way, this is yawing that way. I missed a gyro stack. See if you had your if you had your iPhone, you could have opened up the little uh, gyro app and had it right in front. <laughs> hey, and I'm Jack Hodgson, and I am also back home again, uh, talking to you from uh, UCAP Summer Headquarters, high atop Lookout Point in Nottingham, New Hampshire. Um, so uh, uh, I had a relatively uneventful trip to and from uh, Air Venture this year. Of course, I drove once again. Uh, my resolution of last year did not come through. Uh, that was to fly myself this year, but uh, you know, next year's another year. There's that makes always, both of us, Jack, yeah. what that's worth. You're not alone in that. Yeah, I'm sorry, Jeb, go ahead. So there, there's always next year. There's always next year. I'm a Red Sox fan, man, I'm telling you. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and just to kind of complete the circle here, uh, the trip home uh, was, uh, Jeb, we talked a little bit about yours. Uh, you, uh, the, the thing that I think was notable about your trip home, Jeb, was the uh, ground speed. Uh, yeah. you, were, you were chugging along there. In a couple of places, on a couple of occasions, I was. Um, Especially going over the lake and, and headed, headed eastbound and like that. But uh, once I got um, into Indiana, uh, thereabouts, um, what was really going on was basically no wind. Uh, whatever wind there was 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 light and or um, uh, just enough that basically had uh, maybe a five knot tailwind for another couple of hours. But uh, by the time I got into uh, um, Kentucky, Georgia, that arena. Um, uh, I basically had no uh, tailwind and, and was uh, uh, just cruising along at, uh, at the true airspeed. Um, it was hot. It was way hot. Um, the funny thing, though, it, it got there was a line. Uh, uh, the hole in the line was was perfect in that I maybe had a ten degree course correction to get through it and uh, motored on into Florida from there. But uh, this was over um, central Georgia. Mm-hmm. And uh, flew through the line uh, where I knew there there was a a weak stalled front sitting there, uh, and the outside air temperature dropped about seven or eight degrees. Yeah. Uh, so you were making great time on almost a straight line, and then you got like about twenty miles from home, and what happened? Well, 
little bit further out than 20 miles. I, I was watching this again, watching this stuff on the next rad. You, you, when you're, when everything's nice and smooth and, and calm, and you got plenty of time to do it, that's when you want to play with the uh, the XM weather and scroll ahead and and see what's down the road. And, and that's what I was doing, um, and discovered that there was a bunch of weather uh, forming and, and moving around uh, slowly uh, in the Tampa uh, Sarasota area. And um, uh, as, I, as I got into the Tampa airspace, they gave me a reroute to take me uh, uh, west of Tampa, west of the, well, into the Bravo, but, but uh, to the west of the, uh, the airport, basically right over the coast. And um, in looking at the weather, basically there was a storm that was building, sitting right over uh, uh, where I wanted to be. Uh, it was uh, yellow, red, and um, something I've, I've seen a lot more of this last few weeks, and I want to see again the black stuff. Mm-hmm. Actually. So um, um, decided, well, you know, in, in, at this point I had, uh, I don't know, maybe an hour and a half worth of gas. Planned to have about an hour and a half worth of gas on the ground. And, and no issues with, with even going somewhere and holding for a little while. But uh, the major consideration was I, I don't have fuel at my home airport, and I didn't want to get the airplane stuck um, without enough gas to get out and get somewhere to get some more gas. Okay, I never thought of that. Very interesting. Yeah. 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 So um, Venice, which is right on the coast, the, the, uh, I mean, the approach from one of the runways uh, takes you out over the Gulf of Mexico. Um, Venice was showing pretty clear, wide open, actually. And uh, they have some cheap gas, so I just changed my destination from uh, uh, Hidden River to uh, to Venice, and dropped into Venice um, to let that some of that stuff blow over. Uh, filled the tanks, uh, emptied the bladder, and um, by that time, uh, checked the next rat again. By that time, uh, the weather uh, over my destination had dissipated, and I could see it again. You know, with the Mark One Mod One eyeball, that it had in fact dissipated, and I could see. Um, from the ground, I could see a pretty clear path off in the direction I wanted to go. So uh, we strapped the airplane back on and, and launched again. It was like a 16 nautical mile flight uh, from Venice to uh, to home plate. And um, there was a, a small shower that just rinsed the airplane off and uh, um, landed uh, back here at home about five minutes later. Um, the, the Everything was wet because of the storm that had passed through, but uh, it was not affected. Mm-hmm. Great. David, was your trip home uh, eventful or uneventful? Totally uneventful, and uh, except for late departures and a uh, huge amount of pressure to take a bump, including oh. seeing cash and offered. Not really? just a voucher, but cash offered. <laughs> yeah. I know the feeling, though. Ten, you're, you're, you're 12 days away from home, and you're going, I want to go home. I don't yeah. want. I don't want your money. I don't want your free tickets. I want to go home. Yeah, that was uh, that. It, it started the instant I walked up to the check-in uh, to, at Appleton uh, to uh, to to hand over to Delta more money for my bags. And uh, lady said, before you check in, would you be interested in taking a later flight, possibly one tomorrow? We'll put you up in a hotel. Blah blah blah. And I went, Nothing imaginable is going to happen like that to me. Okay, thanks. (laughs) I thought I'd ask. thought I'd ask. Well, Well, like you said, 12 days, and it was my wife's birthday. Yeah, I know. You needed to get home. And it's like, no, 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 no. Now, then when they upped the ante at uh, at Minneapolis to 600 bucks 
cash. Really? Yeah, it was like, no. <sighs> Think about it for a second. No. <laughs> really? Yeah. Uh, my trip home, uh, of course, I was driving, so mine wasn't nearly as as, uh, as romantic as either of yours was. Um, <laughs> but, you know, one of the things I enjoy doing is I, as I do my uh, car, my cross-country automobile trips, is, uh, is keep my eye open for airports that I pass by along the road. I always wish that I, I took the time to actually stop at some of these airports and visit them. And, uh, but, you know, like you say, you're, you're sort of anxious to get home and so you don't, but, uh, I did make note of a couple of cool airports that, uh, one in particular, um, just seemed really neat as I was driving home through, uh, sort of the middle of, uh, of, I don't know what they call it, downstate New York, not upstate New York, but down, right along the, uh, southern state line of New York, um, in a town called Corning or an area called Corning, an airport called the Corning Painted Post Airport. And uh, it has a runway that is sort of parallel along the highway. As a matter of fact, if you go to go to uh, if you go to AirNav page for this airport, you actually see the interstate that I was on. You drive right alongside the runway, and it's a really quaint-looking ramp area, a really cool-looking old hangar, and with the you know the name of the airport painted above the do- hangar door, you know. And uh, one thing that caught my eye at, at, at this airport was a sign that said uh, it described itself as being the oldest airport in New York. I haven't actually checked to see how true that is, but that's what it was painted on the uh, on the hangar um, and some interesting looking airplanes on the ramp so I sort of added this to my list of airports to visit one day um, the other thing that was interesting is a few miles further along the road um, I passed a much larger airport um, one that appears to perhaps have uh, airline traffic in a small way um, but a much bigger airport the thing that was notable about uh, well, what was the name of this next one let's see it was uh, the Elmira Corning Regional Airport um, is that there was a sign along the airport fence facing the interstate, and the sign described it as the uh, uh, what was it the, the 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 world I forget the exact wording, but it was basically the world headquarter for soaring in America. Um, and oh, Elmira, Elmira, and yeah. uh, and I, I tweeted this because I didn't know what the what the you know origin of this uh, claim was, and people pointed out to me that this is the home of uh, what is it Schweitzer Aircraft, the uh-huh. legendary makers of uh, of sailplanes, and uh, so apparently there's a, a big uh, a soaring uh, um, operation and activity in this area. So it's kind well, of if you if you look at a topo map, yeah, and put Elmira and the terrain together. You'll see it's also on a big, long interstate highway. Right. This whole area is, uh, is, uh, is very hilly. You're going through... I don't, uh, I don't think he got that, Jeb. <laughs> no, I didn't. I usually wait and get your jokes later on the, when I'm doing post The mountain range stretches all the way down to Alabama. Uh-huh. Yes. It's, that, it's those mountains, right. Sailplane pilots, uh, many, many over the years, have made that round trip. Oh really? From yeah. Elmira town to uh, uh, just about Chattanooga, a little beyond, turned around and gone back. Really? Wow, that that it, is impressive. On, on yeah. one flight. No, I, I understand. Yeah, it's uh, is that because of ridge lift or thermal lift or both or all of the above? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's a beautiful part of the of the country. I'd never driven that route before um, through southern New York, and uh, it's very very zigging and zagging. Unlike other routes that are relatively straight, this one is like really following the terrain and and. Uh, uh, very very pretty pretty part of the country. Anyways, that was my non-aviation return home, but I did find a couple things. Anyways, so we're home. We made it back from uh, AirVenture, uh, and uh, we've sort of covered AirVenture to death almost. Uh, and so I won't go into it much more, except to ask whether now that you've had a chance to catch your breath, uh, any final thoughts on uh, on the AirVenture experience this year? 
We touched a little bit on the very, very visible uh, uh, jet crash of Jack Roush's uh, Premier One that happened on Tuesday the 27th. Uh, which there are numerous photos out on the web, and there's even air traffic control audio on the web. What we didn't notice uh, happened earlier in the day and went completely over our heads was that out around uh, Ripon, there was a mid-air collision. Yeah. I that, hadn't that, every, that everybody survived. I, oh, okay. I think I heard a little bit. Describe the circumstances. Well, uh, I will read you from uh, real quick and dirty from the NTSB preliminary. Okay. Uh, July 27, 2010, at approximately 12.15 Central Daylight, a Piper PA-32R-301, that's a Saratoga, and a PA-11, which I believe is the Voyager. Uh, I'm going to get corrected on that. That's okay. Uh, both airplanes were maneuvering near Ripon, Wisconsin, to fly the Fisk Visual Rules Flight Arrival to Oshkosh, Wisconsin, BMC prevailed. Uh, both flights were conducted under the, uh, you know, Part 91, blah, blah, blah. Uh, the uh, prop of the PA-11 apparently impacted the left wheel of the uh, Saratoga. Ouch. Very, very soft thump. Both airplanes continued to Oshkosh. The uh, Piper landed, uh, well, they're both Pipers. The PA-11 went straight into 9, uh, had a bad vibration, reduced when he pulled the power back. The Saratoga went into 1-8 right, the same airport that tripped up Jack Roush later in the day, and everybody walked away. Uh, apparently, the uh, airplanes were in one another's blind spots, uh, converging on Fisk, and uh, uh the uh, PA-11's prop damaged the left wheel, probably flattened the tire, and uh, the airplane couldn't maintain straight ahead and went off the runway to the left. Everybody walked away. Wow. That's Everybody just... walked away from both airplanes. That's yeah, right. bloody remarkable in the air. That's yeah. just horrifyingly close to being an incredible tragedy um, if they just managed a glancing blow like that. Mm-hmm. Wow! Yeah, it really is. As it it turns out, the the pilot of the PA-11 was a gentleman well-known in the Washington, D.C. area. Oh, really? Uh, He had flown the airplane out there um, uh, from the D.C. area, I I, I presume. Uh, He's an examiner, um, uh, a well-known instructor. um, Which airplane? Is he in the airplane above or below? He was was at the PA-11. He was in the airplane below. Below, thank you. Uh, I, I don't know much more about it than what Dave just reeled off. Though. Yeah. Well, uh, this, this this preliminary was sent to me by a friend of mine at uh, at our friendly aeronautical agency, who uh, the the uh, the header in the email was uh, July twenty seven was a tough day, albeit lucky for those involved. Yeah. Uh, man, he just wasn't kidding because he included a bunch of the photos from. Uh, the premier accident, and then the preliminary from uh, the NTSB investigation of the midair. And, uh, you know, I'm more than willing to be corrected on this. Uh, and being involved in the daily at Oshkosh is by no means a guarantee that we hear about everything. Uh, but I yeah. believe that we pretty much got through Oshkosh this year without anybody bleeding worse than Jack Roush. Yeah, I think so. I, I, I think, that's what I, I've heard I, so far. Yeah, yeah. That that that. There's always somebody who who um, you know breaks an airplane, 
um, in route or, or going home. Um, and I, I presume that something like that happened uh, this year, but I don't know about it. Um, I don't know where. You know, it, it's you know, you get it. You know, a fuel stop or two away from from Oshkosh and, and starts to get. Uh, uh, well, you know, is that a related accident or a related incident or a related event or anything like that? Um, that stuff does seem to happen uh, with some regularity simply because of uh, the law of averages. But I'm not even aware uh, of anything uh, other than the Roush uh, uh, accident in, the, in this midair. Um, so, yeah. It was a good year. Well, anyways, yeah, it was quite a year. It was. Uh, I, I stick by my earlier comments that this is a, an air venture that will go down in legend. Uh, we'll we'll talk about this one for years to come with the uh, the field conditions going from what they were to what they ended up, and uh, the incredible volunteer uh, effort to get them there, and uh, and and then just the, you know, it's funny airplane wise. Although there were, a, in my view, although there were a couple of uh, of notable. Uh, airplane arrivals and and you know on the whole it was just kind of an average year airplane wise um, there were a lot of good airplanes don't get me wrong but there were no like outstanding oh my gosh airplanes there um uh, the dc3 mass thing was really cool and that's perhaps the most notable one that i can think of um it's always fun to see the c5 uh which we got kind of up close and when it departed at the end that was pretty cool i really wish we could have had video for that little daily that we did um but uh, oh, we had the C five and the C seventeen, you know, there in the area yeah. at the same time. So, the, so those cool. airplanes were cool. But but all in all, um, it was in terms of airplanes on the premises, it was kind of an average year. But nevertheless, I found it to be one of the most pleasant, enjoyable, relaxing air ventures that I've been to maybe ever. Certainly in many many years, I just had a blast. And well, it, it, being there, I had. Uh, it's not until we returned home. And I started circulating among my, my my pilot friends here in the Wichita area that I had a sense of how this was playing, how what was happening at Oshkosh on the run-up weekend was playing out in the rest of the world. Really? What were they all saying? Well, a lot of people came up to me and said, so was it terrible? <laughs> Did anybody come at all? We heard that it was, you know, flooded out and, and, and nobody could get in and, 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 and it was closed. And yeah. it was like, did anybody show up? And it's kind of like. Did, what, did you turn off the after the first report? Did you just kind of tune it out? And well, yeah. After the first one, didn't figure it could get any better. And it's kind of like, well, you 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 missed out. Yeah. Uh, because it recovered quite nicely. But apparently, there was a lot of people out in the hinterlands who were just like we heard of people who decided to come up short notice after hearing that it was sparse for airplanes because of the weather and the standing water. There were a lot of people who heard that and went, yeah, well, you know, we're just not going. Uh, some friends of mine who normally fly, they drove this year. Uh, probably a good thing because they would have not been able to camp anywhere near their usual area with their airplane. Uh, some folks that just cashed it all in didn't go at all. Uh, kind of interesting that there was a... That, what we knew on the ground up there and what the EAA was broadcasting and, and putting on the website and all that was not penetrating as deep into the psyche out here in the rest of the world as I would have expected. Yeah. You mentioned something, by the way, that I think is going to be interesting to follow over the next few years, if it's possible to follow it. Um, traditionally, uh, one of the air venture, one of the Oshkosh stories is how na- there are neighborhoods there. There are, there are groups of people that, that gather together every year. 
and you camp in the same place amongst the same people and that sort of thing. This year, because of the condition of the grounds and because of all the alternate locations that they cooked up for people to, to park their airplanes or park their motorhomes or whatnot, I, new neighborhoods occurred. People parked next to people they'd never parked next to before. And I wonder whether or not new, certainly new friendships have been formed. I wonder whether the neighborhoods will change next year. Will people return to their original neighborhood next year, or will they kind of try and mix together new and old? Or how, how is that? It'd be interesting to see how this, this grounds condition kind of does a little, you know, reshuffle, if you will, of, of the air venture experience. Um, you know, that'll be kind of interesting to me anyways. I'm very much into the people stories anyways, so I'll watch that next year. Well, it, it's, it's a good point because uh, a lot of old rhythms and old habits uh, were disrupted uh, or thwarted altogether. Uh, and there's bound to be some. Like you said, it'll be interesting to, uh, to hear some of those stories next year. Yeah. Exactly. All right. Well, AirVenture. Um, I'm sure we'll talk about it a little bit more as time goes on. What a on, concept. But yeah. But uh, it was a fun year. It was a great year. It was a legendary year. And uh, um, how many days left, Jeb? You're the I, one who's been say, I, I was going to say only like 349, 350. Yeah, so. there you go. So we're it almost there. now. Yeah, really. How to transition back into uh, regular aviation talk here? I don't know. Um, there's a few things on our list. We're never going to get to all of them. I'm trying to figure out if there are any that are particularly interesting here. Um, we've, we haven't had a chance to talk about general, a general, general aviation news in uh, in a couple of weeks now. Are any of these notable? Did we talk about the progress on the uh, FCC 121.5? Um, issue ban, whatever you want to call it. I'm trying. I'm not sure whether we talked about this during any of the Oshkosh. Uh, uh, I, I don't think we did. I don't think we did. So the latest on this is that the FAA pushed back. Right? The FAA said, "Time out. Wait a minute. Please don't do this." Uh, uh, how did this all play out? Do you, does somebody have the exact details? Well, the way it's playing out right now is that nothing's nothing's different than it was before the FCC. Uh, right, because the FCC kind of put out this trial balloon, but then never actually filed the paperwork to do it. Am I, is that a correct? Is that an well, accurate? Yes and no. Uh, they never published the document that right. would have started the clock right. uh, ticking. But and then the FAA came out and said, "Wait, don't do that, or please don't do that, or you can't do that." Or how how did the FAA characterize their response? Well, the FAA wrote them and said, you, you can't be doing this. Uh, our rules say that these, this is one way to comply with a, a requirement, and we haven't changed that rule, and uh, go away and shut up, yeah. basically. So the way it stands uh, right now is that the FCC has still not published the, the proposed rule, and as a result, it's not happening. Yes? At the moment. Yeah. Okay. So, so we're still. I, I have a. I have a little bit different take. Yeah, go ahead. Um, this the FCC um, document. I'm going to call it uh, was released on or about June one. Um, the um, uh, how should I put this? Um, uh, an organization not necessarily known for. Um, um, being the one to uh, being the canary in the coal mine uh, was the one that this is the Aircraft Electronics Association uh, was the one that uh, alerted uh, the aviation community um, to the FCC's action. 
Um, the action, if it had been published in the Federal Register, if the document in question had been published in the Federal Register, would have started a 60-day clock, uh, effectively banning the use, and I underline the use of, I underline the word use, of 121.5 ELTs. Uh, by, um, let me see here, there's not a date on this AOPA, uh, on, well, I'm sorry, there is, July 20. Um, so basically, it took the FAA five zero days, 50 days, to come up with what is, for all intent and purpose, a strongly worded letter. <laughs> uh, it wasn't even addressed to the FCC. Mm-hmm. It was addressed to the National Telecommunications and Information Administration, which is another federal uh, agency out there somewhere. And their role in all this, I don't even know. Um, the FAA couldn't even come up with the cojones to write the FCC. Uh, it instead took five zero days to write this strongly worded letter. It probably wasn't even, well, let's just open a little sucker here right now. I'm going to say it probably wasn't even two pages. Uh, maybe it was. Um, and this is taking its own sweet time to, yeah, it wasn't even two, a two-page letter. Uh, and this came from, um, let's see. Um, well, I, I, I don't know what's going on here because um, um, the letter that opened up in my browser uh, is from um, uh, it's from an, uh, an FCC office. Uh, okay, enclosed comments submitted by the FAA. Okay, never mind. It was, it was, it was in fact, a two-page letter from the FAA with a couple of enclosures. So at least they, you know, used the Xerox machine to do this. But... Um, uh, the whole thing is just uh, too little, too late on the part of the FAA. They should have been pounding on the table uh, and saying, you know, Jane, you ignorant slut kind of stuff uh, to the FCC. Mm-hmm. Um, and they didn't do it. And they're not going to do it. Um, they're, they, you know, there certainly are, you know, issues of, uh, well, you know, we all have to get along to go along and all that kind of thing. But um, if the FAA ever wanted to stand up for, for general aviation for, a, you know, a change, this would have been a golden opportunity, and they blew it. Yeah, okay. That's interesting, yeah. Another FAA story um, over the last couple of days or weeks, I guess, um, has to do with some sort of changes to the pilot requirements that are in the FAA funding bill. And yeah. and everything I know about this is basically what I just said. Um, this I'm reading from an AvWeb story here. FAA funding bill changes pilot requirements. Rather than me summarizing, one of you more in the know about this, and this is not even the full-blown funding bill. Am I right about this? This is another well, it's, extension. It's, it's an it's an element in the it's an element in the uh, proposed funding bill that I think got added to the latest extension. Okay, and then this is not pilot. This is pilot requirements for like eight airline pilots, basically. Yes. yes. Yeah. This the is, bill uh, requires that a pilot flying for uh, a one twenty one commercial carrier must be an ATP, hold an air transport certificate. Right now, you can sit in that seat. Am I correct here, Jeb? You can be a commercial pilot, sit right seat, you meet the commercial requirements, uh, and you can get an ATP at 250 hours, no. and they're raising it to 1,500. Jeb, no, you, get, when you get a commercial license, commercial certificate at 250 hours. Right. The uh, ATP uh, requires 1,500 uh, 
it used to be like twelve fifty or, or twelve hundred or something like that, and even that went up. Um, I don't know the last five ten years. Um, but what the F, what what the Congress did, and this is all in the aftermath of the uh, um, the uh, Dash Eight crash a couple of years ago in in Buffalo, New York, where um, the uh, FO on that flight was relatively young and inexperienced uh, FO. The, the captain wasn't all that much more experienced, uh, although he did have an ATP in the requisite number of hours. Um, the uh, I believe the woman riding his uh, riding shotgun as the FO had less than a thousand hours in a commercial ticket. Up until that point, that was all completely legal. Um, and in fact, uh, anyone with a commercial multi-engine license um, was eligible to to serve as FO on a scheduled 121 flight up until passage of this uh, this uh, amendment. Um, I don't know. I mean, the whole thing is is closing the, the the barn door after the horses got out. You know, in a, you know, several senses. But um, <clears throat> one one of the things in here uh, that that is good is uh, the bill also requires the FAA to implement NTSB recommendations uh-huh. training for Part One Twenty One pilots, including stall and upset recovery training, which was the the basic probable cause of the Buffalo Dash Eight accident where. Um, for whatever reasons, uh, the aircraft got too slow and stalled, and the crew failed to recover it. Right. So, in general, this seems like an okay thing. No, it doesn't seem like an okay thing. It's uh, off, wait, wait, I'm sorry. Hang on a second. There's an awful lot of micromanagement going on right. here, and some of it's not particularly effective. But the regional airlines have demonstrated their unwillingness to uh, bite the bullet on these kinds of safety issues. He said, um, as a as a devil's advocate. Yeah, as a devil's advocate. Thank you. I wouldn't go nearly that that far. Um, there, there's two or three things going on here. One is, uh, it's first of all, it's a regional carrier. Now we can we can peel the onion here, and, and uh, there there are some questions about. Um, this was this uh, aircraft was specifically operated by Colgan Airways, which not so not so coincidentally happened to be based in Manassas, Virginia, where I used to be based. Uh, so I've seen them come and go, and yada yada yada. But um, for years, um, there's been um, you know a pecking order here, and uh, you 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 get your private, you get your commercial, you get your flight instructor, you get your instrument, whatever, not necessarily in that order. And you start moving up the the ladder, if you will, of uh, of flying of aviation. And uh, thankfully, you can get a commercial ticket at 250 hours, um, and that will get you banner towing. That will get you uh, a lot of other things. You get your CFI. Uh, I forget what the number of hours. It might be just a commercial ticket required to get a CFI anymore. Um, and uh, you start instructing. Uh, you build up time. Um, you get a get a job flying. Um, um, as a freight dog, flying cargo, flying checks at night, um, and eventually you get to ride right seat in uh, um, a one thirty a multi pilot one thirty five operation, uh, whether it's Learjets or Navajos. Um, down the road, another you know two or three four years, um, you get a, an interview with a one twenty one carrier flying you know uh, DC nines or or seven twenty sevens or something like that. Eventually, eventually. Uh, you work your way into uh, the right seat of a, of a frontline carrier, mainline carrier. And, um, you know, um, um, 
hopefully you'll retire from that carrier from the left seat of a 7-4. Um, what this has done is um, place an, uh, a numeric uh, value on experience that really has no numeric value. Um, 500-hour, 250-hour commercial pilots um, uh, can be just fine, can be much, much uh, uh, more on the ball uh, than perhaps might have been the case in the in the Buffalo accident. But by uh, mandating a minimum number of flight hours or a specific minimum flight uh, pilot certificate for the FO on these flights, uh, what the what the Congress has tried to do here is uh, ensure you know some minimum level of safety that a piece of paper uh, simply cannot ensure. Uh, it's 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 up to the airlines. It's up to the flight crews. It's up to the 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 people, the checkers who are checking the checkers uh, to ensure that the crew uh, in front of that, that uh, scheduled carrier, uh, flying that scheduled carrier, I should say, um, is well-matched and well-trained and well-rested and well-paid and uh, um, is able to, to complete the flight safely. That system is what failed. And Congress is simply trying to, uh, um, by, by changing what few things that it can change, is trying to legislate this out of existence. It won't work. Interesting, David. Well, some of some of what Congress is trying to micromanage here uh, has been brought on by the FAA by the FAA's own inability to act on some issues. Uh, I'm going to just address specifically the the fatigue research that's out there. A huge amount of fatigue research out there, and the effort to rewrite flight time and duty time rules that have been going on for years. And the deadlines, the agency's own deadlines and own promises on that have been blown through multiple times uh, because they will get to a point where they've got research-supportable guidelines that they want to promulgate into rules. And one side or the other will throw up their hands and object and basically, you know, drag the process back through the whole cycle all over again. Uh, you know, it's, it's it's no secret that some of the folks flying the regionals, which can be 135 or 121 carriers, uh, they, uh, they they put in a lot of long hours. They fly a lot of short legs. Like the crew that flew the Saab 340s that I flew, they were flying predominantly hour legs. They were doing about eight or nine a day. That's a lot of hard work, yeah. uh, fighting their way through weather, uh, a lot of approaches, uh, uh it's not an easy way to make a living. The money's not great, but that's the dues you pay, like Jeb said, if you want to move up to the big leagues. Uh, we've known for years that doctors, uh, cops, uh, emergency response crews, airline pilots that put in inordinately long days uh, suffer from fatigue. We've known for years that fatigue is a cumulative is, is cumulative factor. That is, you work a really long day, then you get a good night's sleep, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're caught up on your rest, so you start the next day a little tireder than you started the prior day. Three or four days of that, and you can't sleep straight through. I mean, hell, guys, we just went through that with Oshkosh. The cumulative effect of fatigue was what hampered all of us, what makes us stay the extra day when we don't have to be there. Because we would be the dumbest sticks in the airspace if we went out and tried to travel that last day. We're so wiped out. Yeah. 
the FAA has dragged its feet on this for years. Uh, the creating a database with comprehensive training records for every pilot, uh, you know, that's an attempt to stop guys who fail check rides at one airline from going on to another and not be completely forthcoming in their application that they didn't get the last job because they busted a ride. Uh, some of this stuff could have some meaning, but, you know, it, it's the flight time and duty time rules, if nothing else, get those straight. These numerical things, like Jeb said, we all know that good judgment is not necessarily a time-based uh, a factor to develop. It's yeah. an experience-based factor to develop, and you can develop it with a lot of intensive experience much more quickly than somebody with much more experience that it took them years longer to gain. So, yeah, pretty interesting stuff. Um, what's what's going to tick me off is if we go into the next fiscal year, if we go into the next Congress, which is increasingly what it's looking like, and have to start this fracking process of funding the FAA and creating reauthorization from scratch all over again in a new Congress next no, no, year. No, no, no. See, it's clear to me now. I've been, you know, I've been watching aviation in, in, a, in a, from a very distant perch for a long time. But in the last four years, since I've been doing this podcast with you, I've been watching more closely. And it's clear to me we will never, ever again have an FAA budget. Tongue-in-cheek, he said. Um, yeah, it's craziness. I, it's just nuts. But uh, we'll continue that conversation another day. Um, Go ahead, one Jeb. Final, one final note on that. A lot of the things that historically have held up FAA funding and FAA programs uh, being reauthorized, uh, as, as we preached for four years, uh, have nothing whatsoever to do uh, with general aviation on one hand or, or the FAA's programs and funding on the other. Uh, instead, we get into things like I think, the, the, I think what's hanging up the, uh, the current bill is a provision in there that um, would tend to give, I don't know which one it is, FedEx or UPS, some leg up, some advantage uh, in, uh, in its labor uh, relations over the other carrier. And yeah. this has turned into a Donnybrook of epic proportions. Why don't they just strip that crap out and move on? Oh, uh, well, you're the Washington guy. Yeah. You know why not. Um, <laughs> Let's move along here. I don't we'll come... want to think about it anymore. Yeah, I know exactly. That's why we're in Florida now, right? Um, so uh, we got to move along here. Um, I, I want to slip in one quick uh, off-field landing of the week, and then we're going to jump ahead to a whole big list of shout-outs we've got here. The off-field landing of the week um, is uh, so. When I first saw this, David, I thought, "Oh, this is interesting. Uh, another forced landing on a golf course." But reading this <laughs> short story, I'm not so sure that this is a forced landing. Uh, David, what is this all about? Well, it was only a forced landing in the sense that uh, the folks at Cessna Aircraft, uh, you know, Jack Pelton and the, the, the head man and his wife turned to their uh, head of piston uh, pilot operations, Kirby Ortega, and said, Hey, Kirby, how would you feel about landing Rose's, Rose Pelton's skycatcher on a golf course during the Wichita Aero Club's uh, tournament uh, next weekend? And Kirby said, Well, as long as I'm back from Oshkosh on time, yeah, sure. So he landed the uh, the the uh, skycatcher, the 162, on the golf course near on the Wichita- 18th fairway at Crestview Country Club. Here while while the Wichita Aero Club's tournament was going on, and that's right. But they did hold up the drives while he while while he made his approach and landed. Okay, and uh, and what have the authorities said about this whole thing? Oh well, you can be sure that this was all 
ironed out, cleared out, yeah. and 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 uh, and gelled with the FISDO and, uh, and and all the folks over there at the FAA's office in Mid Continent before this happened. Uh, Cessna folks are are really savvy when it comes to this kind of stuff. And yeah. Now, I did a little research to try and determine whether or not this was the same airframe that you flew across America, and it seems it not to not. Yeah, it, it seems not. not to be. So we now know there are at least two sky catchers in the world. Well, according to the gamma figures, uh, the uh, second quarter reports that came out uh, a few days ago, uh, there are four sky catchers that have been delivered. Well, there we go. Progress. This is a sad situation that maybe we should talk <laughs> about someday, but not today because we're running out of time. Um, so this is not your normal off-field landing of the week. I'm sorry, Jeb. Go ahead. Real quick question. Did he fly it out? Yeah, he flew it back out. Yeah, okay. They didn't truck it out is what, he's, what I think Jeb is asking. No, no, they didn't truck out. Yeah. It made an off-field landing, and then it made an off-field departure. Yeah, okay. So uh, this air, this this golf course is now going to be on the charts the next cycle through, right? Let's be Wichita. What's the name of it? Crestview? It, 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 it'll be in, in Kirby's Logbook. Well, that too. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So so it's a non-standard off-field landing of the week. I'm not sure if we're going to congratulate Kirby because he didn't necessarily need to land, but it was kind of cool. And uh, that's... Well, it, it, at least it wasn't a hole-in-one. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. All right. There we go. Uh, shout-outs. Let's see now. Yeah, it's been so long. We've got a bunch of shout-outs here I want to try and sneak in. Uh, the first one I'm going to go with is uh, I want to call attention to an event that's coming up in a couple weeks. So actually, more than a couple weeks, a little over a month, September 25th. Um, at Moffett Field in Mountain View, California, uh, near my old stomping grounds, there is a, an event called Take Flight for Kids. Uh, it's a, uh, an event where uh, there's just going to be some exhibits and some, uh, uh, I'm not sure if there's a Young Eagle thing as part of it, but uh, it's going to be all about introducing kids to aviation and fundraising for a local charity and uh, um, it looks like, and and it's a chance to get on Moffett Field out there. Um, it's a, a, a cool area, and, and you get up near the uh, the blimp hangar, and uh, it's just a, a a fun event. And uh, if you're in the uh, the uh, Silicon Valley area or the larger uh, San Francisco Bay area, you might want to check this out. You can go to takeflightforkids.com to learn more about this. So that's one. Let's see now. Another one is uh, uh, one of our listeners. Uh, we, we have like four different links in our in our our uh, show list, our production list here for this particular story. Let's see. I'm just going to pick one at random here. Um, let's see. Oh, this is Facebook. Oh, don't get me started on Facebook. Anyways, one of our listeners uh, who I'm trying to I'm trying to come up with his his user his forum's name here. Anybody help me? Help me. What's his forum? Andrew B. Thank you, Andrew B. Uh, apparently, uh, uh, successfully uh, did his first solo recently, and uh, we want to just congratulate him and give a shout out to him. Uh, Woohoo! The absolutely uh, and uh, posted a or gave us a link to a picture um, of him uh, standing in front of a uh, of his airplane. Um, and let's see, it says, uh, from left to right, uh, shoreline flight instructor, will solo student, Andrew and sh- uh, shoreline flight instructor, Tim are standing in front of the airplane here. And, uh, so congratulations, Andrew. That's terrific. And I apologize for kind of bumbling over that, but, uh, that's our second shout out. Uh, David, what's the story with the Wichita municipal airport tower open house? Well, part of the Kansas Aviation Museum, the Kansas Aviation Museum is housed in the original 1930s Art Deco Wichita Municipal Airport Terminal. For a while, it was part of McConnell Air Force Base. Uh, the, uh, the, the, the building was deeded back to the museum 
They've got a growing collection, a lot of artifacts. They have restored the tower to its original condition, circa, you know, about 1933, 34, 35, somewhere in there, including the original light guns and little uh, uh, boat-shaped things that they use to keep track of airplanes in a pattern, uh, the radios, the binoculars, the whole bit. They had an open house on Thursday uh, to show it off that's uh, available for you to visit when you come to Wichita and, and, and look at the Kansas Aviation Museum's collection. I just wanted to give a shout-out to the museum folks and all the volunteers that put a lot of hard work uh, and their money as well as their time into uh, uh, restoring this. I don't know that there's another tower cab in existence in the country that hails from that golden age of aviation. But at the time, Wichita Municipal Airport was on the east-west route from Chicago to L.A., from New York to San Diego, back and forth. Uh, got all the names, Wiley Post, Charles Lindbergh, Amelia Earhart, a lot of entertainers went through the place. Uh, it's a really beautiful facility, and uh, congratulations on the, uh, on the tower restoration. Yeah, that's great. Jeb, you got any shout-outs? Just um, <clears throat> kind of an all-encompassing one. Um, just to all of our listeners uh, who came out for the first annual UCAP uh, Beer Bash uh, slash uh, Lining Kugel uh, uh, dissemination event. Um, it was really cool to, to be sitting out there beside the runway at, uh, at, uh, at Oshkosh and, and um, get to know a lot of you folks a lot better. And uh, um, just uh, uh, thanks. Yeah. Uh, it was really special. I, I would absolutely second that. Um, it was a lot of fun. It was very spur of the moment. Um, I, hopefully the word got out to uh, uh, most all of the listeners who were in the area. But uh, we did have fun. And uh, I suspect we're going to have to do that again. Because I know, No, I don't, I don't suspect we're going to have to do it again. I suspect we're going to want to do it again um, because it was a lot of fun. So, uh, so if you're going to – so 350-whatever so days it is from now, uh, make a note uh, that uh, pay attention for when we do the uh, – our next beer bust or whatever it is we decide to call it. Um, it was funny. I talked to some people who said that uh, we, we, I don't know why, but for some reason, when we first announced that on Twitter and through the forums, I, I was trying to avoid calling it a beer, you know, free beer. That's basically what I was trying to avoid. right. Because I was frightened that if I told the world of Oshkosh that there was free beer right outside the airport fence, we would have way more people than our 99 bottles of beer. It was going to, Going to, going to uh, you know, cool off. So I didn't want to use the word beer. So we, we, we invented this term, Liney's Redistribution Project. And the problem then became, I, some people told me later on, is that they weren't sure if we were just going to plain give out bottles of beer to people put in their bags and take home with them, all right? They didn't realize that we were going to put them on ice and drink them. And uh, so we're going to have to be a little more careful about that in the future. But uh, it was a good time. And thank you. Like Jeb said, thank you to everybody who came out. David, um, I have two more shout-outs here real quickly, but do you have any that aren't on the list, David? Uh, I just uh, It's not on the list, but uh, to Ruckin, who's written about his uh, two demo flights, uh now you've done it. Yeah, I know. Now you're going to have to. That's right. He hasn't started his flight training yet, but he has done a couple of fl uh, demo flights. And uh, if he didn't have the bug before, he's got it now for sure. Keep keep at it, our friend. Keep at it. Ruckin was the one. I don't know if we talked about this on the podcast. Ruckin's the one in the forums who who came up with a uh, what we think is a very apt description for our podcast. What did he say? He said it's a it's a a, a beer podcast with an aviation problem, and uh, that's kind of true. Uh, let's see now. Um, 
continuing with our effort to, and we're going to slow down in this effort because it turns out that uh, uh, Dan Johnson has an excellent list on his by Dan by by DanJohnson.com website of uh, FBOs around the country that are renting LSAs, and we're going to start referring people to that and referring entries to that. But uh, listener one C five pilot uh, has uh, sent us along the the note that. Uh, um, Bolingbrook's Clow International, uh, one Charlie five is a suburb of Chicago, uh, is in a sh- sh- suburb of Chicago and they have a, an Aronka champ available for rental and instruction. So, uh, he doesn't tell us what the price is. It appears to be rented out of a and M aviation, uh, at that airport, which is, uh, the website is a and M aviation, a a-N-D-M, aviation.com. So uh, there's another uh, LSA for a champ for rent. That all by itself is pretty cool. And then finally, uh, uh, posting in the forums, uh, a, a, call, uh, a call out from uh, our friend Turbo Ed, uh, the helicopter pilot, also uh, RV pilot, um, who is t- calling our attention to the second annual, I don't know, he calls it the NE rotor fly-in. I don't know if NE is New England or Northeast. But it's in uh, Goodspeed, Connecticut. Four two Bravo is the identifier, and it's on September fourth, with a rain date being the fifth at ten a.m. in the morning. And uh, I guess a lot of helicopter folks are going to fly in there. And so either a, if you're a rotorcraft person, uh, uh, or if you're a fixed wing person who's just kind of curious about helicopters, you might want to check out uh, uh, Goodspeed, Connecticut's uh, airport. Four two Bravo on the morning of the fourth. Uh, and, and let's see now, is that all of them? I think that might be all of them. Any other shout-outs? Real quick to the folks with the Popular Rotorcraft Association. They're wrapping up their annual get-together out in Indiana today. Uh, I understand it's been a pretty decent crowd. I've been getting some second-hand reports via reports transmitted from the Leprechaun. So who's out there? Uh, so he flew out in uh, a Cessna uh, tailwheel airplane, so we're fairly confident He's not bringing back another gyrocopter this time. Okay. <laughs> Jeb, anything? Nope. All right. Well, Jeb, thank you for, uh, th- thank you for sharing us the, the, the extended story of your trip to Oshkosh. I think that's a pretty interesting and instructional uh, uh, you know, story, and uh, appreciate that. Jeb, uh, as everyone knows, you are an, a freelance aviation journalist and currently serving as the editor-in-chief of Aviation Safety Magazine. Where can people find you on the Internet? AviationSafetyMagazine.com, JEBurnside.com, I'll occasionally pop up on uh, AEA.net and uh, AvWeb.com. And Dave Higdon is an aviation photographer, also an aviation journalist, and the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales Magazine. David, where can people find you on the Internet? Oh, AvBuyer.com, AEA.net, DaveHigdon.biz, UncontrolledAirspace.com is not a bad place to look for me. And I'm Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a new media producer. You can learn more about me at jackhodgson.com or aroundthefield.net. Thanks to Jeff Ward for creating our show notes and also for being our sort of staff photographer while we were at Oshkosh. He was wandering around at all of our little activities, taking pictures, and we appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Thanks to uh, Mike Morgan and Royce Earl and to the many other listeners who have created our show opening disclaimer clips. And one other Oshkosh thank you to uh, Mike Morgan for doing the the really cool uh, little, uh, uh, what do they call them? They call them liners in the radio world, uh, the little uh, uh, opportunities to, to diss each of us that we ran during the breaks at uh, at Air Venture, that was a lot of a lot of fun. We're going to get those and start using them. I think drop them into this podcast because any opportunity to give Jeb a hard time is okay by me. 
Um, yeah. Hey, we're also very grateful for the financial support we receive from our listeners. For information on how you can make a donation to this podcast, see the Uncontrolled Airspace homepage and the box in the right-hand column labeled Tip Jar. It doesn't need to be very much. Just 10 or $15 over the span of a year is a big help. And don't forget, you can visit with all of us at the Uncontrolled Airspace website. You can read the blog, view the forums, check out the wiki, the aviation <laughs> movies list, the new ratings, webpage of fame, and more. All of that is at uncontrolledairspace.com. David, what were you going to say? Become an old fart. Go fly, because time spent flying is not subtracted from your lifespan. Bye-bye. And that's enough talking. Let's go flying. TTFN. <laughs>